Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. My name is Tim, senior pastor here at the Vineyard, and I'm so glad you're here. Man, I feel like I've already been to church. Um, this is one of those services where I feel like we can probably just close up shop and go home now. <laughs> I have some prayer. Um, wow, we are closing out our Esther service today, uh, Esther series today. Next week, we're going to launch a new, it'll be a Christmas Advent series and uh, called Humble King. And we will have a booklet to hand out next Sunday for you to follow along with, take home with you, use in your small groups, uh, use in your personal devotions times and during the sermon and all. And so uh, I'm really, really excited about this series that's coming up. But I'm also, I have enjoyed this series in Esther. It has been a challenge for me in, in a lot of ways because this book, the book of Esther, uh, I read in one of uh, the books I was reading about Esther said that the early church, that for the first 700 years of the church, no one wrote anything about Esther. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, Martin Luther didn't want to go near it. Uh, John Calvin didn't want to go near it. And there were just, it was just a challenging book because nowhere does it mention God in the book. And this book is in the Bible. And so when they were putting the scriptures together, there was a reason they put it in there. And uh, the theme through the whole series, the last four weeks... And we could spend a lot of time in this book, obviously. It's a narrative. It's a story. It's uh, not meant to be read like a textbook. It's meant to be read in story form from beginning to end and to, to kind of digest it that way. But it's the theme, the main theme through all of it has been God's providence. That whether you think he's working or not, whether you have evidence of his presence or not, God is behind the scenes somewhere underneath it working and doing his good will. And so uh, I think the fact that God is not mentioned overtly in this, is, it just speaks to that. Because as we've seen in this story, God does have his way and Judah does survive and because we know that Jesus, as we head toward the Christmas season, we know that Jesus came from Judah, that David, the house of David, right? So that group had to survive, had to make it, could not be wiped out because the Messiah, the Savior of all time, would come from Israel from that part. And so though it looked threatened, threatening at the time, though it looked like God was not operating, he was. And so uh, this has been... I, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's been very difficult for me not to read the whole thing every single Sunday to you guys. And uh, because it is a story. It is a narrative. And so let's just catch up as we close out. There's a handout or a uh, fill-in on the back side of your handout if you want to flip over and follow. But let me just kind of, if we can again, do an overview of this book. This book uh, is written around... You know, this probably happened around 486 to 465 B.C. Let's just round it off and say 500 years B.C. And this is the time. Uh, Israel had been taken captive a couple of times by the Babylonians. And then the Persians come in without even one sword being drawn. The, the, the Persians come in and take over. Now, the Babylonians were ruthless to the Israelites. Whereas the Persians, their way of ruling and reigning and handling 
uh, let's say, the disgruntled people and, and the Israelites was to let them go back to Jerusalem, let them rebuild the walls. You know, they still contained them and they still controlled them, but they gave them a lot more room and a lot more freedom to, uh, to be able to do what they wanted to do. Well, this particular uh, era and during this particular group, the southern kingdom, they weren't released as quickly as the northern kingdom to go back to Jerusalem. And so we have a contingency. We have a large group of people living in this area who are still kind of under the boot of the Persians. Well, along comes Xerxes. He's the king. You may have heard of him. I saw him in a movie. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was kind of weird. And... Um, Xerxes, some history, you know, there's some comments about Xerxes being like super handsome and tall, and he was a ruthless king, and, uh, and you know, he had a harem. Uh, this is in the area of Iran uh, where this is going on, and uh, he's a ruthless king, too. He has a harem, and he has this particular girl that's his queen, Vashti. He, he's really proud of her, and he's having a party, as you will see if you read this. There's lots of parties going on in these 10 chapters. And he has a party, and after a few days of uh, drinking it up and all, he wants to show off his wife. And so he asked, he says, send for her to come in so I can show her off to my bros. And, and Vashti's not having any of it. She's like, you're not going to parade me out in front of a bunch of drunk scoundrels. No way, you know. I'm not coming. I'm reading into it a little bit, but um, I'm thinking what she was, maybe what she was thinking. I'm not coming, you know, I'm not doing it. Well, this embarrasses the king. He's totally embarrassed. He's angry. He asks his friends, what do I do? His friends say, man, you know what? If all of our wives hear that your wife did that, they're all going to quit listening to us. So you got to do something about this to set an example. And so let there be a huge beauty contest and get all the most beautiful girls from the whole realm to come and parade before you and you choose a new queen well Xerxes said I like you I like it I like it and so they had a call for all the beautiful girls to come in and in those girls was a Jewish girl named Esther Hadassah or Esther in this and so Esther is a part of that contingency. She comes in immediately. She gets the favor of the people who work with the, the harem. And uh, she just has favor with everyone she comes in contact with. And eventually they have the beauty contest. Esther comes out. Xerxes looks at her and goes, she's awesome. She's beautiful. I'm going to make her my queen. Makes her his queen. Well, Esther has been an orphan of sorts for a long, long time. She had a cousin because... Uh, Mordecai's uncle, her dad, was killed, and evidently the mom was too. And so Esther was raised by Mordecai, her cousin, her first cousin. And so, but evidently Mordecai, according to the history, is very old at this time. I'm talking could be 100 years old. He's old. And so he raised a young girl who was probably a teenager at this time by the time all this happened. So he's raised a baby at an old age his whole life. He loves Esther. He cares for her. She goes into the king's harem. She becomes the queen. Mordecai's hanging out on, outside the gates, and he hears these two guards talking about killing Xerxes. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king, and she says, Listen, my cousin told me this was going to happen, and he's really saved your life. And so he gets those two guys, and he, and it was brutal, puts them on a stake, kills them like that, impales them. We go on, there's the next guy named Haman, which is the king's right-hand man, and suddenly he, he, he enters the story. He enters the story, and 
He is like the king's favorite person next to Esther, but his right-hand man. Haman is just full of himself. And he's also an Agagite, which is the first enemies of Israel after leaving Egypt. And so there's this just hatred that he has for the Jewish people anyway. And Mordecai, when Haman comes out, he's the big man, you know, how you want respect and all. Nobody, he, Mordecai won't bow down to him. He just will not show him respect. He won't do it. And it ticks off Haman. So Haman figures out, here's what I'm going to do. When he finds out he's a Jew, he goes, I'm not only going to kill Haman, we're just going to wipe out every one of the Jewish people, all of them. So they had this habit of taking a dice or a die, one dice, and this is how they tried to interpret things during that period of time. And so they rolled the die, the pur, the pur they rolled it in order to find out what date do we just kill off all the Jews, all of them. And so it comes up a date that probably February, March, that in that area of time, comes up. And uh, he goes to the king. The king says, okay, here's my signet ring. And I'm passing a lot of stuff. Says, you have the orders, go kill them all. Well, in the meantime, Mordecai hears about this, right? He even gets a copy of the order of killing everybody. So he gets word to Esther. Esther, you've got to do something about this because we're all going to be killed if you're there, you're the queen, you need to go to the king and appeal to him to stop this order because the king still doesn't know she's a Jew. Doesn't know yet. Well, Esther goes, he hadn't called me in 30 days. I can't just walk into the, to the chambers because if I walk into the throne room and he hasn't asked me, he could kill me. There was not only the scepter that was extended to say, I accept you, come on in, but there was the axe that said, Wrong time, wrong place, wrong king. So unless you were called in, you didn't go in. So Esther says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in, and if I perish, I perish. Well, the setup, which I won't go into, is amazing. Because she gets with Haman. She gets with the king. She says, let me throw a banquet for you. And the king goes, oh, this is great. Tell me what you want, even up to half of my kingdom, which was a saying the kings had. It didn't mean literally half the kingdom, but it was just a saying. I'll give you half of my kingdom, just tell me. She goes, well, what I really want is to have another banquet. Because she knows Xerxes loves banquets, right? And so building the tension, building the tension. Well, Haman's been invited too. It's just the king and just Haman. So Haman's really full of himself right now, right? Really full of himself. Well, in the meantime... In the meantime, what happens is the king has a dream. A dream seems to be inconsequential. You have dreams all the time, right? But that's the way God works. God works sometimes through dreams and things that we call happenstance. And the king has a dream, and uh, he dreams it in such a way that he says, did somebody do something really great for me that I don't remember? Because the king always had to thank the person and had to repay them. That was just part of being the king. You didn't let niceties go. And so he asked the scribes the next morning, hey, has anybody done anything nice for me? He says, yeah. Look, in the, look into the report and see. And he looked and he goes, yeah, this guy Mordecai, he saved your life. Did I do anything for him? No. Oh, man, i got to do something for him right now. Who's in the court? Well, who's walking in at the, that exact time? Haman, the guy who wants to put Mordecai on the stake, right? Haman's walking in. The king walks out and says, Haman. 
Hey, tell me what you would do for a guy that, and he goes through this list, this description. Haman thinks the king is talking about himself. So he goes, well, I'll tell you what I would do for that guy. I'd put him on one of your horses. And I'd put your robe on him. I'd put your crest on the horses right on his forehead. And I'd march him around town and show him off, thinking the next words are going to be, that's you, Haman. And so the king goes, that's what I want you to do for Mordecai. <laughs> See the grand reversal? You see this? Okay, we're getting to see, you know, things are turning. And so sure enough, he takes him. And I love the way there is no discussion in that line from verse to verse because when the king says, do this, he did it. He swallowed his pride at that moment and he put Mordecai on the horse and he marched around town declaring Haman's greatness on behalf of the king. Now, of course, as soon as he got back from his tour, uh, he stops and he runs home to his wife, he runs home to his friends, and he's just, oh, he's so embarrassed and humiliated, and just, he's just, and they look at him and go, these are Jews you're dealing with? And basically, excuse my vernacular, but then the wife's attitude changes, and the friends, and they go, you're screwed. <laughs> you're screwed, because these, you know, they knew God's people Whatever, they're like, hey, this looks like things are turning here. Well, then he gets just as quick as that happens, the king's guards come in and snatch him up to take him to the party that Esther is throwing. So he is taken off to the party. He's in the party. And in the heap, I got to point this out to you. I know. You guys ever read this? I know, I know. I get, I know, I know. I know, I know, I know. But, 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 but this is so good. And so uh, at, the, at the dinner... You know, the second dinner, they're eating, and uh, let me find it, let me find it. Okay, then Queen Esther, the king says, Queen Esther, what is your petition It will be given you? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will grant it. Second time that's been said to her, right? She's been holding it off, holding off, building the excitement, building the tension. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Well, now, he's going to be super surprised because he didn't know her life was threatened, right? He didn't even know she was Jewish at this point. Grant me my life. You can imagine the king going, somebody's threatening my babe here. This is my petition. And spare, listen to this identification, and spare my people. Grant me my life, spare my people. This is my request for I and my people. Now she's identifying. She's saying, I am a part of this group. No longer keeping it back. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And in the Hebrew, at least this is what I read, this is said kind of like a machine gun. Who is he? Where is he? Da, 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 da. That's the way it's said. And Esther responds like a machine gun the same way. An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. <laughs> Bam. Boom. Now, now, man. Imagine Haman. What the heck? You know, I just... Walked Mordecai through the city, and, and now the queen, and, and of course, the king goes ballistic. He gets so angry, he gets up and storms off. Well, one thing you didn't do is you didn't hang out with the king's babe when he wasn't around. 
You don't do that. He should have got up even though he's done anyway. But he should have got up and not stayed there. You couldn't come within seven steps of one of the king's harem. A male couldn't. And you could not be in the room alone with him. So what does he do? He figures, I'm done for anyway. He falls on her and begs her. The king comes back in and there he is grabbing her. holding. He's like, you would attack my wife too. And about that time, then comes the guys. Off he goes. He gets impaled on a 75-foot stake that he had made and had put up outside of his own house for Mordecai. It's brutal. Then we move to the edict, the edict to kill all the Jews. It can't be rescinded. Well, they say it can't be rescinded. The king, he could. There's some debate about that. But anyway, he could write another order. So he wrote another order, brought Mordecai in, said, you write it up. And that is the Jews can defend themselves. Do everything you can to defend yourself so when you're attacked... You will not perish. And sure enough, that's what they do. It goes for a whole day. By the time it's over, there's over 75 or 25,000 people killed. Let me see. I added this up. Let's see. No, 70. Let's see. There's 500. Then there's 510. Then there's 300, 800, 75,000. That's a lot of people. And the queen's brutal. And then the queen says, give me one more day. King says, is that enough? One day? She goes, no, give me one more day. Now, that poses a lot of questions, doesn't it, about the brutality of things? One thing I want you to know is that God works within the culture. It's not that God sets the culture up. It's that he comes and works within whatever culture he finds that we have on the earth. And, uh, you know, in your, and i got to get my fill in here. Man, i got so much into the story. It's a good story. Isn't it great? And it's historical. There's dates. There's numbers. I mean, it kind of nails it down. You guys get this? Thumbs up. You do. All right. So your first feeling there is God is good at reversals. He's really good at turning things around. Really good. In Esther 9.1, it says, but the tables were turned. But the tables were turned. And... Um, in the brutality and all, again, I, I want to say this too. This was long before Jesus came. Uh, this is 500 years before the Holy Spirit has fallen and has been given to God's people. Now we have the presence of God in our lives. We have the Prince of Peace in our lives. This Now we live in a different era of time, and so things are processed differently Jesus has given, us, uh, has given us a mandate of how to live life, and he's training us to live that way. We do have the Holy Spirit within us to help us. So it was a different time. And I do want to recommend two books. we got those books you can throw up on the screen. Two books, if you, if you want to read, this is one, Is God a Moral Monster? by Paul Copan. It's probably one of the first books I read about this issue, uh, Making Sense of the God of the Old Testament. It's a great read. Is it deep? Not that deep. You guys can do it because you're smart and you love the Bible. And you can read it. That's one. And then Paul co-authored another one. This is a little thicker and a little uh, deeper read. But did God really command genocide? And if you wonder about those things, which I do. I do wonder about those things. Those, those questions occur to me. And, uh, and these books are really good at helping us. I'm not saying they'll answer all the questions, okay? But they will give you a perspective historically and scripturally 
of culture then, culture during Jesus, and, and what he's called us, how he's called us to live. But God is good at reversals, and, and I want to point out just three things this morning that he is really good at reversing in our lives. And things turned out pretty good for the Jewish people. Mordecai became more powerful than Haman in the end. Um, they established, uh, you know, Purim, which is a take on the whole rolling of the dice thing. And uh, we have uh, some uh, Jewish people in our church, and they have told me that the celebration of Purim is one of the most exciting one. Growing up as a child, that it was the one of celebration and, and giving of gifts. And, and also, the, indeed, the die had changed. It turned because uh, now the Jewish people have a festival that celebrates them not being wiped off the face of the planet and based on Purim. And that's the name of the. And so um, God's really good at this. And, and He's really good at, at this is your next feeling, reversing our expectations. Reversing our expectations, going from the expectation of we're all going to die. Maybe somebody will deal with this at some time, but it's all going to happen to, you know, something good is about to happen. In Matthew 4 23, when Jesus came on the scene, this is what it said about him proclaiming the good news. Of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, why did he do that? Yes, he loved people, but it was a declaration that there was a new king in town. There was a new controller in town. It was somebody who had authority over everything that you see. That was the expectation. 99.99% of the people during Jesus' time and era were not just poor, desperately poor. I'm talking from one moment to the next having to live where is the next meal coming from? What are we going to do to survive? And so you had that large segment with a very small amount of people who didn't have to worry about things like that. And into that comes Jesus preaching what? Good news. Good news. Change the expectation of the people. That's the reason the crowds began to grow with Jesus because he had good news. Their expectation was what are you talking about? You mean there's some good news for me? I've been raised in this caste system all my life. We've never had anything. We've had to worry about food. We'd have to worry about who's going to protect us, who's going to take care of us. You mean there is a different, we can have a different expectation in our life? Yes, because the good news is good news to people who need good news. And it's among the people. I heard one of the most Amazing stories. Linus, you guys know, one of our friends, dear friends and missionaries that we support, Linus Morris, has been a friend for a long time. We were having lunch last week, and uh, Linus was in town just for a couple of days to say, hey, on his way back from Ethiopia and headed back to California. And, and I want to read this story about a guy named Moses in Ethiopia. Listen to this. Moses was the 13th or close to that child of a polygamous Ugandan who had four wives. Moses, however, was the offspring of a mistress and not one of his father's wives. His mother couldn't raise him, so gave him to his father's parents to raise when Moses was just a couple of months old. As he grew up, his siblings, half-brothers and sisters, told him he wasn't part of the family because his mother wasn't one of the father's wives. Moses grew up with the sense that he didn't belong. When Moses was 15, he became homeless with the sense that he didn't belong. A girl he met took him to church where he became a Christian and began to realize that he belonged to God and was part of his family. 
He got involved in the church and was mentored by the pastor into a leadership role. When we met Moses, that is Linus and Phil, his brother-in-law, or son-in-law, when we met Moses, he had been put in charge of the fellowship community churches in Uganda. Sorry, I said Ethiopia. Uganda, which had 200 churches in its network. Since Moses, this 15-year-old homeless man, has been in charge of it, it has grown to 700 churches. Moses is also their director for the divine expedition in Uganda now. How is that for different expectations? Do you think a 15-year-old homeless boy had any expectations that one day he would be leading a church group of 700 churches? God is great at reversals. Wherever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever loss, whatever pain, whatever sense of impending doom, the axe or the scepter that you have in your life, through Jesus Christ, the scepter has been extended to you. Amen. Your expectations can change. God offers that in Jesus Christ. He is the great turnaround artist. God is. He can do it in your life. Don't give up. If you have thoughts of like, I'll never be any different. This is it for me. Hey, let the turnaround artist come into your life. Let him begin to deal with your life. He's great at reversals. God is great at reversals. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Our founder, uh, John Wimber, used to have a saying. He says, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? God is good at reversing our expectations. And secondly, God is good at reversing our desires. That's your next fill-in, our desires. Mark 12, 30 through 31, Jesus recites the Shema, which was Israel's great cry, and it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, right? The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, none. Our desires used to be for ourselves. Our desires used to be for just selfish reasons. And now God comes and he reverses that. And suddenly our desires for like we were singing a while ago in worship. I just want to spend time with you, Jesus. I want to know you in a deeper way. I want to experience your, your presence in my life. I do want a difference in my life. I want my affections to be different. Have any of you Christians found out that your affections have changed a little bit since you've been walking with Jesus? Your appetite? I don't mean for food. Well, maybe, but. <laughs> but I mean, you know, appetite for things, right? And, and where they haven't changed, are you still battling? Yes, you are. Because the Holy Spirit, God is there within you saying, that's not what you want. Man, I'm working the grand reversal in your life. That's not good for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? He's changing. He's wooing. He's changing every bit of our expectations, our desires, our affections are changing to now. Now, the people, the people you used to hate, you look at and you begin to love. Well, maybe. But he's working on you because that's what he does. That's how he does. That's the grand reversal. That's it. The great change. He begins to change our affections. In Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, he you know, the prophet begins to prophesy what we were going to experience. Listen to this good news. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. I love that because I need moving sometimes. Move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You're like, well, Tim, I can't do it. You need to be moved. You need some movement. You need something bigger than you. You need something more powerful. You need something that can do the grand reversal in your life. And move you to obey. Move you. That is the grand reversal of God and in Jesus. In Romans 7, 18, Paul is riding along and he's talking about this struggle. And he gets to 18 and he goes, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. You ever been there? I mean, I know what's right. I know what I should do. I want to do it, but I just doggone it. I just fall. I just, I, I, I don't do it. And Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Man, what is wrong with me, God? Why can't I do what I'm called to do? But you can't stop reading there. You like fold it up and go, <laughs> what a wretched man. Oh, Don't stop reading. Don't stop reading. Don't stop reading. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? What is it? It's good news, right? It's good news. Then he goes right on. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good news. Good news. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what? What the Spirit desires. That's your battle. Your battle is that desire. The reason you're battling is because God is moving you. So don't let the devil or you know, something talk you out of the struggle. Stay in it. Continue in it. Continue to surrender your life. Continue to let him move in you. Surrender for He's changing your desires. You know, this guy, Paul. Paul, at one time, you know what he used to do, right? Paul hunted Christians down. His desire was to kill Christians. Paul, who wrote, what, most of the New Testament, his desire, what he wanted more than anything was to wipe Christianity off of the map before it ever got rolling really well that first century. And Jesus said, I'm going to do the grand reversal in your life. I'm going to turn you around, son. Things are going to change for you. On his horse to do it, headed that direction. Jesus comes, bam, 1971 hotel to a surfer, Moorhead City, North Carolina, knocks him off of his... Three-point lotus stance in the hotel room. Knocks him over and says, what the heck are you doing? And says, I have life for you. Bam, bam. Knocks Paul off of his horse. Who are you, Lord? I'm the one you're persecuting. Turns him around. Grand reversal. And he ends up writing most of the New Testament. Changed Paul's desires. The grand reversal of desires. In your heart. Lastly, he reverses our destiny. Reverses our destiny. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Say the gift of God. Gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes. It once was death and now it's life. The grand reversal of all. I tell you what. God pulled off the greatest heist in eternity with Jesus. Because he took back what was stolen from him, you. 
on the cross that day, God pulled off the grand reversal. Because you were headed this way. And on the cross, he paid the price to that price, the heist. He heisted you right back to himself. And when he came up out of that grave, it was like done. You want to see this, devil? You want to show you how powerful I am to reclaim what was mine? Death will not hold me. Death doesn't hold me. Death won't hold what I buy back either. Just as I rose from the grave, so will you. Just as I'm with God the Father now, so will you be. It's good news. It's a grand reversal. Don't let the devil get you down. Don't let your expectations of never rising above where you are get you down. God is the grand reverser. He is the one who can take whatever has been dished out to you in your whole life and turn it around and put you in charge of 700 churches. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want this? Don't shout me down. All right? I like... Man. There was a guy that, uh, that helped us start this church, he and his wife. He was a part of another church that we started 30-some years ago. He was also a part of my life in a church 40 years ago. He lived with Karen and I. He was a single guy that we took into our home and let live with us for a while because he had no place to live. Um, this guy we watched, I watched him from the age of about 18, 19, get married, help us start two churches. He got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And if you know anything about that disease, horrible. And kind of die from the inside out. And we got the phone call one uh, Sunday after church that Joe was going to die shortly. And so we drove over to the house and I sat on the bed with Joe. And his wife had to kind of interpret for me. She understood what he was saying. And he sat there, and we sat there, and the tears rolled down his face. And we talked about all the experiences we had. And when we talked, we laughed. I promised him when he got married, I said, I'll dance at your wedding if you ever get married, Joe. And sure enough, he did, and he called my hand. <laughs> and, uh, and then something occurred to me when I was sitting there with Joe, and I looked at him. I said, you know, Joe, we're right behind you. I said, if indeed eternity is on and on and on and there's no sense of time in it, the time you get there, I'll be there too. Because eternity begins when you come to Christ, not when you die. It starts the moment you say yes to Jesus. Your eternity has already begun. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you can learn more about us by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you need prayer, you can call us or email care at seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel called to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or text any amount to 84321 and follow the prompts. Thank you.